2: Hi, and welcome to the pollsters. I'm Margie Omero, Democratic pollster with GBA Strategies. And
1: I'm Kristen Soltis Anderson, Republican pollster with
2: Echelon Insights. And each week we bring you the polls driving the latest news in politics, tech, and pop culture. So we, Chris and I were in Austin this past week, and we just missed you, Richard. I think you arrived as we were leaving, perhaps. Um, our producer, as folks, close listeners of the pollsters know, is also an Austinite like myself. And when I agreed to do this, to go to the Tribune Festival, I thought that it's going to be great. I'm going to talk about all the funky Austin things that exist. I'm going to show Kristen all the wonderful places I hung out as a – college kid that are now Starbucks and Urban Outfitters or whatever. And then it was like the day after the Kavanaugh hearings that that I arrived in Austin and I just was filled with rage instead of like Longhorn Austin love. <laughs>
1: and you put out a, a request on Twitter. You, you were like... Should Rage Margie show up in Austin, or should it be measured? We're just looking at the data, Margie. And overwhelmingly, in that poll, people wanted Rage Margie. And so I'm here to confirm for you all: if you were not at Texas Tribune Festival, we got, we got a a, a, a scotch of uh, Rage Margie. Yeah, it and could have know, been rageier, but it was uh, it was it was more more ragey than I think normal.
2: Yes, and afterwards I was like. That was a little bit rager than I, normally, than I normally am in such things. I'm not sure, like, I, you know, maybe in hindsight I should have been slightly more measured. But that's how I felt because it was just such an incredibly toxic moment that's, you know, basically still here. Thankfully, I guess I'm traveling, so it feels a little bit like I'm a little bit removed from just kind of constant rage. Um, But it is still pretty uh, – it's pretty tense out there. uh,
1: Well, I had a great time at the Texas Tribune Festival in part because I rolled on down to Steve Kornacki's political trivia contest. And I was all ready for like super weird questions about things like what college did obscure Senator X go to and stuff like that. And it wasn't really that – that level of challenging, of, of, like, super nerddom. But there were some questions that I got wrong that I am embarrassed about. Um, One, a question was, how many female senators are there in the Senate? And I pull out my little napkin and I start being like, okay, Alabama, no. Alaska, one. Arizona, none yet. (laughs) Uh, You know, going through my list and and I missed missed Tina Smith in Minnesota and I missed one more, which I will not name because – Uh, It was less excusable for me to miss that name. I want to embarrass myself. But it was I was I was fortunate enough to join on with a team of just nice looking folks sitting at a table of five people and teams took six. And Margie, you had you had other obligations like my team plans fell apart. So I became like adopted into a team called Children of the Kornacki and they were <laughs> fabulous. And the, the team came and supported our panel. They all sat in the front row. We had a political science professor, a journalism student. It was it was great. Great fun. Thanks to Steve. And I'll plug Steve's book, The Red and the Blue. It's all about political tribalism and its birth in the 90s. So check out his book. You're welcome, Steve. All right. So this week's top lines, uh, the Kavanaugh hearings uh, have broken America. Um, Are more Americans making up their minds uh, about this nomination as a result? We'll do a quick check in on the midterms environment. And then what I am the most excited about today, we are joined here in the studio, by the team at Optimus to discuss their forecasting work on the midterms and the work they're doing with Decision Desk HQ. And we'll wrap up the show by finding out how long people would be willing to go without a shower if it meant they didn't have to give up coffee. But first, poll (laughs) of the week. Oh, and a a brief warning for our listeners. So we are taping this on Wednesday afternoon. It is 2.04 p.m. Eastern time. Sometime in the next 20 to 30 minutes, the president of the United States is going to push a button. Scott, you said this is a physical button?
0: Oh, yeah. I heard it's a physical button, and it also brings him a Diet Coke, hopefully. We'll see. (laughs) So
1: it's going to send off an alert system. So my phone is on silent, but if all of a sudden, like, 20 minutes into the show, like, Richard, don't edit it out. Just, like, let it—it's just part of the—I want our listeners to feel like they're here, really experiencing this alert with all of us.
0: So we're not ducking under the desks, right?
1: Yeah, nope. It's it's not real. It's not a real emergency insofar as— Uh, you don't consider it to be an emergency that he has the power to do this. Maybe it's actually
2: actually a calm moment because everything else is an emergency. And the moment (laughs) that he's pressing the button, no other emergency is happening.
1: That rises to the top of the list. (laughs) Uh, But so first, let's talk about the poll of the week. Earlier this week, the Pew Research Center put out a new study assessing voter attitudes about President Trump, And various uh, characteristics. Uh, We talk about polls like this a lot, but I like the Pew battery because I think it has fewer things that are like blatantly inflammatory troll poll fodder. (laughs) Uh, Pew is good at not being troll poll fodder. I applaud them. Um, These are, you know, things that you can see a voter saying. Uh, positively about President Trump. And, you know, he gets pretty low scores on some of these uh, some of these metrics. Uh, But nonetheless, I I like the way they kind of handle this. So they tested what do voters think about Do they think Trump stands up for what he believes. Is he able to get things done, keep his promises? Is he a strong leader, well-informed? Does he care about people like me? Is he trustworthy? Is he even tempered? He scores best on the attribute, uh, stands up for what he believes. Even a majority of Democrats, 52%, will say, yes, that does describe him well. Um, 91% of Republicans, meanwhile, agree. Uh, his m- lowest score comes on even-tempered. Uh, 70% of Americans say, no, that does not describe him. Uh, and he wins even half of – less than half of Republicans on that question. Republicans may like other things he does. They do not think he's A level headed dude. I wrote a column about this because I wanted to get um, some sort of. I wanted to look at the Republican answers by gender and by age and just see if there was anything interesting that popped out. There is actually very little difference on gender within Republicans about how they think about things. I've gotten asked a lot in the last two weeks with all the Kavanaugh stuff, how are Republican women feeling? do Republican women feel like Trump, you know, is offensive to them and stuff? And this sort of reaffirmed that, like, no, for most Republican women, like, there is a, a small slice of them that is no fan of this president. But... The gender gap within the Republican Party on Trump himself was perhaps lower than you might have expected. But on generation, um, there was some pretty big divides. In fact, the biggest divide came on, well, is Trump even tempered? But then also, does he care about people like me? Only 63 percent of Republicans under the age of 50 think that Trump cares about people like them. Um, So I wrote a whole column about this at the Washington Examiner. Um, The other question that they asked in this poll was about do you believe – and they asked this of Republicans and Republican leaners. Do you believe that president – that a Republican congressman or congresswoman um, should have to sort of support President Trump's agenda in all things at all times or is it okay for them to disagree with the president if they really – hold a different view and for older republicans they lean more towards saying you should support the president no matter what you're in the same party with him but for younger republicans it was almost like 70 percent of republicans under 50 who say no 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 if you disagree with trump do your thing speak your mind so big divide in the party about whether sort of trump should be this all-consuming uh presence that really dictates what everyone in the party says and younger voters younger republicans more open to uh more open to disagreement, so I, my huh. my columns at the Examiner. If you want to take a look, that
2: sounds like so up your alley. That that, that finding, like, what does it mean? For, uh yes. <laughs> I was
1: like, what am I going to write my column on today? And then I saw the email from Bridget. Bridget is the uh, communications uh, person at Pew, who always sort of keeps us keeps us apprised of the latest stuff they're doing. And as soon as I saw it, I was like, yes. I have my column idea. <laughs> I even filed early. It was wonderful. No, um, that's, I mean,
2: right, because then, like, is it uh, – how do you keep Repub- younger Republicans in the party and attract other younger voters to become Republicans if they have this sense that, you know, maybe the president doesn't really care about pe- people like me and, you know, there's we should
1: – Yeah, I mean it was still a majority, but, but yeah. man, for for the president of your own party and for it to be 63 percent, like that number feels low to me. It's a majority, but – Gosh, it should be a lot higher. So, um,
2: so a, a couple other things about this list of traits. I mean, first, what's interesting about this, and, and we talk a lot about on the show about how the public polling is not always similar to what internal candidate polling is like. There, they have different goals, different uses. This set of traits is very much like what a candidate poll for a candidate would test mm-hmm. these kinds of traits. I mean, these exact phrases and. Um, You know, folks may remember, too, I I think there was, like, a very early episode of the West Wing where they had a debate, should the question be cares about people like me or cares about people like you? Is the interviewer – does the interviewer sound like they're referring to themselves when they say, like me, or so do you have to say, like you? How do you talk to the respondent about it, right? So that's, like, how common this particular question is, right? I love um, that you just
1: made a West Wing reference,
2: which I never do because I've. I, for, I know
1: this is like a game changer. It came from you, not me. <laughs> but wow. that,
2: but they were. It was in here. <laughs> that, that's what I remember. <laughs> um, so, uh, but anyway, so that's how. Like that's how you know. If you don't believe me, I guess you can that these traits are common. You can go back to the West Wing, but um. Uh, and the fact that this cares about people like me is the sign of empathy that people want and expect from their leaders. And the fact that this is so low, and even though it's a majority of Republicans, it's still bottom tier with Republicans. 72% feel that way about him, as opposed to 91% of Republicans who feel he stands up for what he believes. So I, I think it's a sign. Obviously, it's 8% of Democrats. That's so not a surprise. To feel that way. Um, it, it is a sign, you know, it, it's obviously not a surprise, but it is a sign that this president's, you know, either this is what holds him back from being more popular, or he is popular despite it. You know, he has some popularity with Mm -hmm. Republicans and such, despite that, uh, because it is very much different from you know, what people have come to expect and say that they want and want to feel about their president or about elected leaders in general. And we've, you know, seen other polling, and I talk about these numbers a lot, where, you know, a majority feel that the president doesn't respect women. I mean, that to me is like a startling number. Uh, it's a startling fact. I mean, so this is all kind of, that's all part of that.
1: So let's move on to the big story of the week, the Kavanaugh confirmation debate. Um, There has been uh, – we've had a lot of polling actually drop in the last couple of days um, about people's overall views on the issue. Um, His numbers, again, we've talked about on the show before, did not start in a great place uh, and did not really – move into a better place as a result of the hearings. Um, But you did wind up seeing the movement be fairly small. Um, So political morning consult currently has it at 37 percent say confirm, 40 percent say reject, 23 percent undecided. Compared to their previous poll, that is an increase of three points on both the confirm and reject side. So more people kind of making up their mind a little bit, but you still have about a quarter who don't. And that roughly one quarter of voters who don't know, they're undecided, it's too soon to say, is pretty consistent across the multiple polls that ask this. CBS found a sort of plus two on the reject side, 34 or pardon me, 35 confirm, 37 reject. 28 too soon to say. Reuters-Ipsos showed the biggest margin for um, oppose versus support. Theirs is 41% oppose, 33% support. Um, Among independents, interestingly, they released the crosstab, and Quinnipiac also released all their crosstab, but they didn't specifically have an unsure response people could choose. Um, In the Reuters poll, they actually gave people the option to choose unsure, and about half of independents still say, like, the the jury is still out on how they feel about this. Um, the Quinnipiac asked a bunch of questions. They asked confirm, reject, um, and offered crosstabs. But then they also asked things like, do you feel like Dr. Ford was treated fairly? Do you think Judge Kavanaugh is being treated fairly? Um, tons to unpack here. Margie, what are you thinking about these polls? I
2: mean, I, I guess – you know we want to know the answer right away right it's still evolving and you know while i believe i feel and i believe that there are folks on the democratic base for sure and i guess some of these polls suggest on the republican base too who are firming up how they feel about this based on what's been happening but they're getting their cues from you know the major television event that was the, uh, the hearings um And from what they're seeing from their senators, I I, I don't know what this means for, you know, the separate question is, what does this mean for the midterms, you know, and we can see that by, you know, what kind of, are are there candidates who are going to be putting money behind communicating on this? And, you know, I don't know if I'm, if that we're going to see that in House races, do we see it in Senate races in some of these Red states, where red states where Democrats are running for re-election, but Trump won the presidency, or in the kind of expansion states, the open seats, Texas and so on, uh, where there may be, you know, Tennessee, Arizona, Nevada are those states where. Um, you're going to see more uh, conversation about this than than you know than in a house race. I I don't know I don't know how many people are going to be voting based on this. I don't know if candidates are going to be talking about this outside of the base, but it will depend on what happens over the next week. I mean, this is happening. This is still evolving quickly, and like the president's absolutely shameful comments last night in Mississippi at a rally where he mocked. Dr. Ford is just so grotesque and disgusting. Um, I think, you know, you're going to see folks on on either side feel very strongly and passionately about this topic. It's one of those moments where, you know, I I do believe there are a lot of folks in the middle who may not vote based on this, but for folks who are following closely and have a strong opinion one side or the other, it's going to be incredibly hard for folks to come together and reconcile after this. It is, you know... A breach to Democratic women, you know, uh, uh, on par with the presidential of, you know, just a very difficult, very difficult to then sort of find common ground with somebody who, you know, feels strongly the other way, especially given, you know, the way the president behaved.
1: And, and um, I think that kind of underscores the challenge of even conducting research on a, a story like this that's so fluid. I mean, you've got right. in the Quinnipiac poll, for instance. Sorry,
2: Rage Margie took. No, over no, no. Them. It's OK. It's OK. So
1: in the Quinnipiac poll, you know, they have it at 42 percent confirm, 48 percent reject. Um, when you ask people, who do you believe, Dr. Ford or Judge Kavanaugh, uh, the numbers are almost the same. 48 percent say Dr. Ford, 41 percent say, Judge Kavanaugh. So those, those numbers are right in line. But then they say, do you approve or disapprove of how Democrats have handled the accusations, Republicans have handled the accusations, how President Trump has handled it? And actually, President Trump in the Quinnipiac poll gets the best ratings of all of, all of them on how you've handled the matter with 49 percent saying they uh, – or, pardon me, voters disapprove, but by a narrow, mar- narrower margin, 49 percent disapprove, 42 percent approve. Right. That makes sense because he was quiet for he know, was quiet a brief moment. He was quiet, and then he wasn't. Um, so, you know, it's – I think that just – whereas 52 percent disapprove of how Democrats are handling it, 56 percent disapprove of how Republicans are handling it. So it's there's, – there's a lot of anger to go around, but, you know, this poll happened before the president's comments. And so it's just sort of the – the peril that you have when you're dealing with data that even comes from a day or two before in a situation that is this fluid. Um, right. And then, you know, in the last 24, I mean, look, people are looking at this through the lens
2: of party for sure. And and I and I get that, right? You know, the same, you know, and then you have these other conversations that you, if you're not following every twist and turn, you're thinking, well, why are we talking about people, you know, drinking in high school? Is that really, you know, that's not, you know, that shouldn't keep somebody off the Supreme Court, even though that's not actually what we're talking about. We're talking about, you know, the fact whether, you know, whether or not you lied uh, under oath. Um, and, you know, since, the, since the hearings you've had, and even in the last 24 hours, and, you know, a really large number of people who've come forward to say, you know, Brett Kavanaugh is not really telling the truth about his experiences because I was there. Does that change things as, you know, this conversation evolves? I don't know
1: yeah, so there is I, I think the one other number, you know, lots of the data that's come out sort of suggests this is uh, a a neutral to bad oh, I'm getting I'm getting word, oh, the alert has gone off. and it does not say it does not appear to be, I mean, besides the caps of this is a test, it does not look like a presidential tweet. Uh, and it did not make my phone buzz. So
0: I was hoping for emojis diacodes so or I a was hoping for something.
1: Okay. Hey,
2: my do not disturb button on my iPhone works great. <laughs> it just has so a little when, like half when moon, the nukes and that's are it. actually
1: flying, we all have the ability to prevent ourselves from knowing. That's great. That's fantastic. I was sort of hoping this thing was going to like actually buzz, like override the silence and be like, "No, there's an emergency." Uh, OK, back back to the polling. Um, so, you know, the, the Quinnipiac poll again, 42 confirm, 48 reject. Like, that's not good news for Republicans. The gender break, 37 percent of women say confirm, 55 percent say oppose. Like, that's a really scary gender yeah. break um, for, for Republicans. And yet there are two questions they asked in the survey that kind of made me like scratch my head. One was, do you believe or not believe that Judge Kavanaugh is the target of a politically motivated smear campaign. And 49% say yes, only 45% say no. And then they ask, do you think that Judge Kavanaugh has been treated fairly or unfairly? Uh, 47% say he's been treated unfairly, while 43% say he's been treated fairly, which suggests people in this survey think Judge Kavanaugh has been treated worse than Dr. Ford has, even at the same time that that same sample does not necessarily want Judge Kavanaugh on the court. like So those were two numbers that were like head scratchers for me because they were just so different than the rest of the poll, which seems to suggest um, that these voters were placing a little more blame on Republicans um, and were more likely to believe Dr. Ford, et cetera. Like they, there is also a significant chunk of people who, even if they don't necessarily think it means you should put Kavanaugh on the court think he is has been treated unfairly. So it was like it was a lot of there's a lot going on in that Quinnipiac poll. Um, but yeah. again, as, as we noted, uh, things are always changing. I have no doubt that that president's how the president is handling the matter number would be uh, different now.
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, so a couple of things to watch. Um, you know, obviously, this, the senators to, who have been part of sort of you know, been targeted senators all cycle. This will be another, you know, piece of of that conversation. Does this affect, does the gender gap here affect House races where so many of the targeted House races have high numbers of um, college-educated women who are skewing Democratic already by pretty large margins? Are they going to be identifying with Ford and, you know, get even more angry at this administration and and the direction Republicans are going in a way that'll, you know, affect House races. You know, those are, you know, that's another layer here that, that I think is still kind of yet TBD.
1: Well, let's take a quick break. We'll hear from our sponsor for this week's episode, ExpressVPN. So we're back. And now I'm so excited to be able to introduce the pollsters universe to our friends. Are you good with people? Maybe you're organized or have a knack for numbers. Well, then chances are you've got skills that could lead to a new career. A Google career certificate can help you get a foot in the door with top employers in fast growing fields like IT support, project management, data analytics, and user experience design. It's professional level training developed and taught by Google employees. And it's all online so you can learn around your schedule. Put your skills to work. Go to grow.google slash certificates. Scott Tranter and Alex Aldunson of Optimus. Thank you guys for joining us.
0: Thanks for having us, Kristen and Margie.
1: Uh, So we are excited to have you because obviously the midterms are coming up. Um, You all are analytics geniuses. And right now we have a race where. The president's job approval has been pretty stable for a while. This week, you know, the week in Trump, uh, HuffPost pollster has him at 42.6% approve on average. The generic ballot continues to hover around D plus 7 in the polling averages. Uh, What are you guys seeing? Is there something that the average news consumer is missing if they're just looking at something like those generic ballot numbers to assess?
0: How much money is being raised and how much money is being spent? Um, most people don't realize how much money on both sides, both independent expenditures. It was just released today that CLF has raised about $150 million for the cycle. And for those keeping track in 2016, they raised about $50 million for the cycle. So this is an off-presidential year and one, it's just one of many, but one of the bigger IEs has already tripled its fundraising from the previous cycle. So it just gives you an idea of how much money is raised. We're looking at all the fundraising in each individual house races. I think I saw that the challenger to Devin Nunez in a, a very Republican district raised four point three million dollars. I am old enough to remember when a targeted House seat you could win one for about a million and a half, and now a challenger who's probably still going to lose by high single digits is. Raising four point three million dollars, so that's that's what I think most people are missing. How much money is involved in this cycle. So how
1: do you then factor that into your assessment of things? You know, I can look at the generic ballot. I can see d plus seven. Um, but if i if I'm also seeing, hey, there are tons of these Democratic House candidates that are raising tons of money. like how how should a forecast integrate that kind of information or sh- or should they? Like sh- or should you say, well, no, if that money's making an impact, then wouldn't the generic ballot be moving?
0: Yeah, so that's a good question. One of the things we did when we model these things out is we look at historical fundraising totals going back several election cycles to see how that interacted with things like the generic ballot, presidential approval, and our specific model. And you can go look at it at decisiondeskhq.com. All you got to do is give an email address and you can read all about the methodology and all about the data variables we pull and how we use them. Um, But one of the things we do is we pull all of the individual FEC reports and we understand and compare them to how their opponents have done in the past as well as how they're doing now. Um, and then we feature engineer from there so we can understand impacts, like just because you raised four point three million dollars if your opponent raised four point three million dollars as well that doesn 't have as much of an impact if you raise four point three million dollars and your opponent raised a million yeah. um, things like that and so when we had done our back testing, we had found and it should be a shock to no one that money is a huge, huge factor in predicting the outcomes, not the only factor not always even the deciding factor but it's pretty significant in figuring out who's ahead or who's going to be um ahead when the election's called.
1: Margie, maybe do you know that what's the fundraising situation between Beto, O'Rourke and Ted Cruz or or Scott do you guys do you guys know know this answer cuz this was when we were down yep. in Texas like the number of people in like Beto for Galactic Emperor shirts was <laughs> like it was everywhere and of course our panel was like the panel of killjoy political data folks that were like uh, Ted Cruz is probably still going to win, but like what what's what is actually the money sure. situation as of right now? In yeah, yeah. Way?
0: So that's I'll answer your question directly up front. So it's thirteen right now, cash on hand, um, and we're about to get a new report. But last last time it was publicly available, thirteen million. Ca- or I'm sorry, fourteen million cash on hand. O'Rourke, $9 million cash on hand, um, Cruz. But more importantly, total contributions. So how much money did they've raised for the entire cycle is basically tied at $23 million apiece. Interesting. Now, the interesting part is, is we still have the race at a 69% chance that the GOP will hold it. So qualifies as a lean R. It's a PVI of an R plus eight. And the polling, and there's many different ways where you can cut the polling, obviously. Our smart average has Ted Cruz up by about four points. So despite all that, despite the money parity... million is a lot of money, and Texas is a big state, um, and $23 million goes a lot both ways. Despite all that, Ted Cruz still holds an advantage, and it's mostly because of those fundamentals. So it's an example where both sides have a lot of money, but the fundamentals of the state still give an advantage to the incumbent.
2: So do you look at when you are looking at the money, because it's not just about total money, right? Is total contributions or the size or out-of-state versus in-state can show something, or whether you're getting... Pack checks versus, you know, people, voters in the district might tell you something, maybe, maybe not. There's also how expensive of a place it is in the media market structure. I mean, obviously, Texas is big with multiple media markets. You know, if you're looking at trying to compare house races, a lot of house races have just one media market. Sometimes that media market's incredibly expensive. It's hard to break through where your dollar doesn't go as far. Other congressional races have three media markets. Do you guys look at that at all?
3: Yep. So uh, the the numbers that you know stand out a lot are cash on hand and contributions. But in terms of our model, uh, we include pretty much everything that FEC gives us, um, even stuff that you know some might consider and consider uh, uh, insignificant, um, because we do th- we do get value out of that uh, when we look at historical um, predictions. Uh, Some of those variables actually do matter. So to give you a couple of examples, right, in Florida, in the Florida Senate race, uh, which is heating up uh, similar to Texas, um, Rick Scott has raised a lot of money. um, But actually, as it turns out, most of it is just his own money. Um, And that matters a lot less than small contributions, for instance, where Bill Nelson is actually uh, clobbering Rick Scott, quite frankly. And that's not something that
0: we're just using conventional wisdom for. That is
3: data we have collected back multiple
0: elections and back tested to make sure that it's statistically significant in the outcome. Um, and pri- the primary reason, and, and we don't necessarily agree with some of our other. Um, t- talented predictors out there. But we have the Senate race is a 30 percent chance the GOP flips it, um, despite Rick Scott um, having a significant amount of money. And that has a lot to do um, with that that small but important facet about small dollar donors and things like that, as well as the public polling, which is available there. But it gives you an example where um, the FEC data plays a pretty huge role in, in how we at least evaluate those races.
1: So you mentioned the other forecasts that are out there. I mean, I, right before I walked in here, you guys have the odds of a Republican... Republican Senate majority, I think, at 87 percent. Dem majority in the House was like 81.96. Um, I think 538 earlier this week, like, cut their likelihood of a Dem House takeover from 80 percent down to like 75. So, you know, I think there are a lot of people that don't totally understand, like, what would make it different. Why would you guys have a different number than 538? Aren't you all using this? Isn't all the data the same? <laughs> um, so, walk our listeners through. What makes your model different? Why should people go to Decision Desk HQ? Like, what, what, or How can they be smart consumers of these forecasts?
0: Sure. So first thing I would say is all, all, most of the ones you mentioned, 538, um, G. Elliott Morris, um, who has two of them out there, one with The Economist and one by himself. And I, I know there's others out there. All, all these people who put it together, David Byler does the Senate one. They're all very good at what they do. And, and the, the analogy I'll give is predicting things like this is kind of like trying to cook the best hamburger. All of us are very good chefs. All of us have our own ingredients, and all of us think we have the best burger, um, or in this case, the best outcome. I think the the key here is everyone has a slightly different audience and what they're um, intending it for. Nate Silver has a wildly popular site, um, and lots of people looking at it, and his is obviously a little bit more journalistic in nature. Um, and ours, at least our focus is, is we have a couple of um, private clients who are looking at this, and so we have tuned it slightly different for that kind of um end user, so to speak. Uh, what I would say, and I, I don't know if, if uh, Nate Silver would agree, but I would say, roughly speaking from a macro sense, I think we all agree the Republicans are behind the eight ball on whether they're going to they're gonna keep the House, they're head of the eight ball, when whether they're going to keep the Senate. And what will be interesting to see is on the individual predictions, who's going to win Virginia 10, who's going to win Minnesota 2, who's going to win Florida, um, Florida 23, Texas 23, all these individual races. I think that's where you start seeing the differences between some of our models and see where some of these choices we've made on variable selection and how to weight things and how to calculate things. That's where I think you're going to see some of the difference.
1: What do, well, first of all, what would you say is the best burger?
0: <laughs> that is <I'm>, an excellent
1: <laughs> question. I have shifted my loyalty from Shake Shack to Five Guys in recent days. I had a bad Shake Shack experience. Best burger? Oh, in and out Oh, yeah. no, That's yeah. that's true. I, I was, As a I was California still person, thinking In-N-Out. inside my D.C. bubble. Best burger? Shake Shack. Shake Shack. OK. All yeah, right. but in
0: D.C. specifically, you got to do Ray's Hell Burger. I don't know if you've done Uh, that. Oh, I've been there well. yes. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yep. Yes, actually. I agree. So so speaking of, of, you know, other ways to look at this, I am curious for your take on the the upshots, like, we're going to, like, data straight into my veins (laughs) methodology. Because I still, like, I think Patrick at my firm just, like, loves it so much and, like, is like put this straight into my veins and I'm like, I'm still a little mushier on how I feel about it. Like, what was so,
3: this? so I feel, or I'm sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, I was just going to say before before Scott gets into the live polling component of it, I just want to say as you know, someone who works on our model every day that um, it's great in the sense that its it has gotten us polling in a lot of districts that would have otherwise not gotten polling. It is a very so, good
1: public service, prob- and I don't understand yeah. how they're paying for it. Like, <laughs> yeah. that's so much polling. <laughs> it's like, did the yeah. old, did the gray lady just, like, write a yeah. million-dollar check to Nate Cohn? Yeah. Like, call every American, go. <laughs> in, in,
3: uh, in 2014, the, uh, we compiled every public poll that we could and internals that were released, as many as we could. We got 258 um, in 2014. Um, we're we're already at 270 um, nice. with a month left right. um, in in 2018 and. think there were 50 about 54 districts total they got polling in 2014 and we're already over 100 so and and you know the upshot sienna poll is that to know yeah that's very cool and and the upshot sienna has uh has has done its part in in that front
0: and transparent on methodology which i think we all agree is the important part you may have particulars about how um the New York Times conducts the polls, but at least they're transparent about it and you can, you know, take it for what it's worth. But I will say when Nate announced it, I, I was like nervous for him. Yeah. Um, having done this, and I know Kristen and Marjorie you just don't release partials to clients unless <laughs> yeah. you wanna like Unless you want to ruin your life, and so I, I remember I tweeted I was like I, I want this to work. I, I'm just nervous about just there's like reasons why you don't do it, and I, and I was proven wrong. It's it certainly it's been fascinating to watch. Now
2: there are still reasons why you don't do it. So <laughs> <laughs> very Clients, good reasons you're still not, for not getting partial. Yeah, yeah, big shout out to
0: Nate who's like ruined it Sorry. for all of us. Uh. <laughs> you can no longer tell the client. But no, I think it's been great. I think. Um, the interesting part is, I think people are learning quite a bit about. A different qual. I mean, methodology is more of an art than I think most of us like to realize when you decide to call, how you decide to call, what file you use, whether what cohorts you pick, all those types of things. And I think that's been very helpful to the readers. I kind of wish we had this back in 2012 when we were having arguments about unskewing polls and things like that. <laughs> the next time I hear someone tweet about you're talking to more Democrats than than, than you should, I was like, oh, well, no, do you know the is, weights or not? Did you or? see,
1: if, as we walked in, like Bill O'Reilly oh, yeah, yeah, tweeted yeah, was, out the big, yeah, yeah. like, this is how you know the polls are rigged because they poll more Democrats <laughs> than Republicans. <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) It's like... Yeah. Uh, that could well, just I, be that you've accurately represented, represented the, the, the partisan population. identification uh, yeah. of the American public guy.
2: Yeah.
0: I mean, yeah.
1: that is so, I get, I mean, I've seen
2: Republic, I, I got into. I don't get in a lot of Twitter fights. I got into a Twitter fight with a Republican pollster who was making that argument. I'm like, why are you doing that? Wait, you can know? you name names? Yeah. Do, do I know this yeah. story? Yeah. I, I, yeah. I, tw- I got into like some sort of vague, you know, not a Twitter war for me. It wasn't like really a big Twitter war. Yeah. I think it was Mc- what, like McLaughlin or whatever his name is. So, um, um, the and, guy
0: who called Cantor's race yeah <laughs> oh okay well
2: <laughs> so this is a I family said, show you know, so <laughs> yeah so uh so yeah so i was like you know that that's not why would you you know tell your client why would you tell your clients that like you know that that's not true and um and he got we got into like this back and forth and he's like i guess you're not answering me because such and such i'm like i'm at my kid's a holiday festival. I don't have time to fact check your tweets. You know? Literally <laughs> like, nothing about it.
1: this exchange surprises me. Nothing. <laughs> so, that, <laughs> now that you've explained it is the least surprising story. And I'm I'm ninety <laughs> 99% sure that you had told me that in the past. Um, <laughs> so, uh, Scott, I've got so to... That's re- okay. I'll, I'll repeat it again eventually. I, I've sure. got, a, I got a question for both of you. So, there was a, a few years ago, I dragged a bunch of people to like a dinner at like Charlie Palmer Steak or something like that. Like a whole bunch of... GOP data digital people. I remember
0: I was underdressed. Yeah,
1: <laughs> No, you were fine. You were fine. Um, Charlie Palmer was like the restaurant in my office building. And so, you know, it seemed fancy, but it's just where we would like go all the time because it was you could get really good French fries. Um, and we had this dinner and I remember you at the dinner saying you could tell what chapter of – the Victory Lab. Oh, yeah. Sasha Eisenberg's fabulous book. Uh, a client was on based on the questions they were asking
0: you. Oh, yeah. So, like,
1: you knew, like, oh, they're they're definitely at this part of the book. They
0: figured out social pressure mail. They're giving me ideas on what they want to put on door knockers. Like, okay, there you go. Chapter six right there. It's pretty much what it is. It's And it's, it's good. People are learning this on the job and they're reading this kind of stuff. But, you know, just like any advanced stuff, sometimes a little knowledge is dangerous.
1: Well, in a way, like, also the Victory Lab at this point is now – it feels like ancient history. Yeah, and a lot of
0: the stuff they're talking about is from 04, 06. Sashi, you got to write 06. another book. I know. He's got to have a follow-up, although I hear he's got another book, not or about politics that he's working on, and he's enjoying L.A., so. As yeah. you do. Yeah. Uh, but are
1: there new questions you're getting asked now? Like, not fr- straight out of Victory Lab, but, like, do you ever get asked, like, can you guys do the Cambridge Analytica stuff, which yes. I have ranted about extensively oh. on the show, and we'll spare our listeners, unless yeah. you would like to contribute a rant?
0: Oh yeah, I've got plenty. <laughs> I've got plenty of opinions on that. I've got a. Lot, I got too many opinions for the last few many topics. If we have beer next time, I'll be a little more forthright. Uh this but is yeah, great. Are
2: we going to just take down Republican folks? This is like I'm totally here for this. <laughs> <laughs> he, he, here's the thing on
0: the we get asked the Cambridge Analytica question a lot. Um, and what I always like to say is whether you whatever you think about what they did or didn't do, let's just take the, the, the initial facet, psychometrics or psychographic, whatever they want to call it, it's based on a Myers-Briggs test. And go Google whether Myers-Briggs... Is social science proven fact anything like that? And you'll find that it's uh, pretty excuse much. Excuse you,
1: I am a hundred percent an INTJ. One hundred percent.
0: I I, 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 I am believe... definitely
1: an E. I and believe then it you're kind of falls apart from me after that. I believe you're an INTJ,
0: which is what point four percent of the population. And one hundred
1: percent of the Echelon Insight staff. One hundred percent.
0: You guys are all leading the pack. Um, <laughs> But it's not social science. So whether or not you believe what they did or didn't do, the basis for what what their advantage was isn't science. And so it doesn't matter what data they may or may not have stolen. It does not matter what they said they may or may not have done. The The premise of their superiority apparently is not science. And so – Let's just stop there. That's a there. good
2: new contribution to, to the r- rant canon. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> so Although they I had really good that. accents, and I'm sure made everyone think they're really smart. The British accent always just, you know, makes you like oh okay you must be smart Margie
1: is married to uh, a gentleman with a British accent
2: oh okay so. he's so, you know, <laughs> probably funny, really so smart so if I
0: meet him he'll be really smart no it's <laughs> what's
2: funny is because he worked on one of the presidential uh, campaigns last time around and I was on a panel and someone's like oh people with British accents who you know get work on presidential campaigns I was like oh, is he <laughs> subtweeting my husband <laughs> and I was like oh wait no never mind forget it anyway but yeah so he's got nothing to do with Cambridge Analytica
1: and, and hey Margie, look, you know, we've we've taken some shots at folks that have worked on the Republican side. We can talk about your favorite. Favorite Democratic pollster, if, if you'd like, I can ask some questions and spark some rants on that front. <laughs> yeah. and Mark Penn,
2: I'm always, I'm ready for a Mark Penn rant at any time. Like, I
0: thought Rage he was Margie, a Republican now. I Rage Rage thought has been
1: uncorked, okay? <laughs> <laughs> Who knows where we'll go? <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, so I mean, I feel like the, the, the Cambridge Analytica question is always bothersome because it's the like, well, they were doing the sophisticated thing. Can't you do a sophisticated thing like that? And it's like. No, let's that, yeah not when accept I the tell premise you I'm not of your do yeah, that like yeah. that's not it's not because I like it's not like oh man they have so many more like phds gosh wow like no it's that we fundamentally believe that's not work but to the flip side of that right so there's this idea the, the Cambridge analytica narrative that like data can tell you how to change people's minds but then there's the flip side which is the like words that were well, obviously, I'm, I'm, Mr. Su- I'm subtweeting someone here. The idea that, like, well, if you just get the magic word, like, it's it's the opposite of the like hard data. We're going to use analytics to yeah. noodle with people's brains, and we're going to like we'll do qualitative, and that's how we'll noodle with people's brains. Like, I also kind of rebel against yeah that idea too. Like, so post 2016, I feel like in the lead up to 2016, there was a lot of talk about like, oh, Republicans need to get better about data and blah 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 and then the election happened and republicans won and then i feel like there was this backlash against the the data brains right that like oh you guys all got it wrong i mean so what's what's your argument to someone that says i don't know if i trust this data didn't didn't all y'all tell us that Trump wasn't going to win?
0: I invite them to my poker game because they obviously don't understand stats. <laughs> okay. I I I I guess the way we put this is yes, and we get that a lot is like oh you data guys were wrong in 2016, and and I'm on the record saying that I I don't I didn't think Trump was going to win, and clearly I was wrong there. But what what I like to tell people is. It's not a binary choice. It's not like 100% one way or the other. It's probabilities. And for those people who gamble, um, they understand that a little better. But if you don't, even if you don't gamble, you understand one and three. You understand two and four. And let's just take. Nate Silver's publicly available model the weekend before the election in 2016, and he had a roughly a 30 percent chance. And I will say, one in three occasionally happens. And so to say the data, would you
1: say it happens one out of three times? Yes,
0: (laughs) yes, it occasionally happens. Usually one in three times, and it's not impossible. One in four times occasionally happens. Our model as it stands today, as you pointed out, the Republicans have about a one in five chance, a little less than one in five chance of of happening. If I'm in Vegas and I'm placing $1,000 on something, I'm going to bet the Republicans are going to lose. But one out of five times, they're going to win. And therefore I'm going to lose $1,000. But what if Vegas
1: is going to pay you like really good odds on your bet that Republicans keep the house? Then like you might go, OK, well, if I think there's a one in five chance and they're paying me like eight to one, you know, oh, yeah. maybe it's actually a good bet, you know?
0: Yeah. No, and it's funny you bring that up. Like, I, I was director of data science for Rubio, so I used to sit in the room with Terry and, and the political directors and all that, and they'd be like, well, what do you think is going to happen here? And I, I got sick of answering the question, so I started saying, look, I'm a $1,000 sure this is going to happen, or I am $50 sure this is going to happen. And that was a good way so they could understand that, you know, what the weight of a prediction was. And I think that's the, <laughs> the important factor missing in a lot of this data analysis is, there are odds and then there are, are, are weighted odds and things like that. And how do you interpret them? And I think that's, you know, like I said, some people get that, some people don't. The more people who get that will be less angry at the television.
1: <laughs> oh, <Maybe>. I would <laughs> love fewer people to be <laughs> angry at the television. Yeah. Uh, well, hey, guys, thank you so much for coming and Thanks joining for having us, us, us here in studio. This was fantastic. We got to get you back next time. Yep. Fierce, poker. We can
0: talk about our favorite pollsters.
2: Yeah, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> you know
1: I love a lot of the people Nobody's on our side. To I'm that that putting show. the sunshine, sunshine, hat on for a second you
2: know? <laughs> <laughs> like this show. Margie and Kristen have people on to talk about pollsters they like, and like two people will listen to
1: that.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for having us, guys.
1: Of course. Yeah. No, you're most welcome. All right, so Margie, let's wrap things up with our end of show poll. Uh, New survey says people would give up showering for coffee. This is a poll done uh, by our friends at Morning Consult, so slightly more upscale than the usual poll we put in (laughs) this section of the show. (laughs) Um, In partnership with Nestle, they surveyed 2,199 coffee fanatics through an online poll, and they went to find out what exactly drinkers were willing to give up in order to get uh, a cup of coffee and what strange hobbies they do while drinking coffee. Speaking of polling on strange hobbies, we still need to do the poll about what do people do during conference calls. Like, I really want to do that poll. Like, have you done any of the following things during a conference call? Does that poll exist? I, I, it's got
2: – yesterday I brushed my teeth while I was on a conference call and I forgot to put it on mute. And I oh had an <laughs> electric toothbrush and I am so embarrassed. I was like, oh, but do I say something now? Like, sorry, i was brushing my teeth. Or do I just, like,
1: hope everybody thinks it was somebody other than me, even though I'm sure they all knew it was me. I always love Sorry. the like, like some, like there's some strange noise happening on a conference call. And eventually the call leader's like, can you put, can someone put themselves on mute? Who's making that noise? And like the person never fesses up and is like, oh, it was me. Like they just, the mute happens and you never know.
2: So, well, you just outed yourself. Um, yeah, no, it was fine. It wasn't. It in
1: wasn't. this poll, so um, they found that uh, 62% of coffee drinkers say they literally can't function are we abusing the word literally there i think so without coffee almost half said they would rather not talk to anyone before imbibing their first cup that seems extreme but okay um 41% admitted they drink coffee in the bathroom or shower Margin- oh i
2: definitely i drink coffee in the bathroom i don't drink coffee in the shower but i have considered it and I've, i i but i don't have the quite the right i think my it's possible i've brought my mug my like closed up mug in the shower i think i've done that but not on a regular basis but i've definitely brought it into the bathroom no doubt i don't even think that this definition of like a coffee fanatic is good enough to be fanatic so maybe they just use that word like two out of three of the folks they spoke to drink coffee every day 86 percent at least once a week i mean you're not a coffee drinker if you're not drinking coffee at least once a week
1: uh, I am a coffee drinker and I have been abstaining from coffee for the last few weeks. I've abstained from Twitter and I've abstained from coffee. I'm trying to bring like my blood pressure down. Coffee gets me too overhyped, but I still think of myself generally as well, a coffee. Well, i think drinker. taking a break, but you know, th- you would not I'm trying to I reset think... my system so that coffee starts working again. Yeah, like I'm trying I don't
2: to cleanse <laughs> I don't think you would volunteer yourself, though, as like, oh, I don't drink coffee because you abstain for a couple – like, you know, no, I'm on no, vacation no, no. after 2016, and I have – I decided I would have – just have coffee at breakfast only, and that and that's it, no, no other time. Because I can drink coffee pretty much all day long, and, and then when I do focus groups like I am, you know, during all the, these weeks right now, I'll have coffee through – you know – when I get to where I'm going, I try not to drink coffee before I get on the plane so I could sleep. Although I don't always do that, and then a, a coffee immediately when I land, <laughs> and then probably some more coffee during the day. And then co- this, now I feel like I sound like a crazy person. Now, like then I'll drink coffee. I have to have caffeine for each group. You know, I have to have at least one serving of caffeine per group, um, and then I go to bed. Then somehow, amazingly, after all that, I go to bed. Well, that's that's a feat. <laughs> I think somebody needs to like like right now I'm in my hotel room and I, I ordered a pot of coffee and they brought me three cups but it's just for me <laughs> alright sorry <laughs> <laughs> I now I feel like a little embarrassed well about hey d-
1: don't be embarrassed because in this poll 29% of coffee drinkers said they would give up spending time with their significant other for a week before they gave up coffee and a quarter who sur- were surveyed said they would rather go without a shower for a week than live without coffee
2: I think I mean significant other. No, I wouldn't make that trade. Shower, it would be hard. I mean, that's what
1: dry shampoo is a is a miracle. You know that helps, but a week is a long time. A week Ugh. is a long time.
2: It depends what I was.
1: <laughs> yeah, it depends on what's
2: happening. Faces that week. don't
1: translate over radio, but I'm like, Ugh. yeah, no, I think that's true. I mean,
2: and I, as I was saying before we started recording, I, I would. Not give up coffee, but I would definitely if somehow giving up showering would make this election come sooner, if that's a trade I can make, then then I'm gonna sign me up because it is
1: time we get to the end for sure. <laughs> so Margie, what'd we learn this week?
2: Okay, so I have an emergency alert for all of you. Rage Margie is beating out measured Margie. And if it's still Kavanaugh and election season, then I am not giving up coffee. But I definitely gave up showering. It's not even a closed contest just to get us to the end as quickly as
1: possible. You can find us on Twitter at @thepolsters The individually at At Margie O'Meiro and at KSoltis Anderson. Find us at www.thepolsters.com or on Facebook, where throughout the week we post links to the stories we think you want to talk about. We hope that you will come back for next week and the week after that and the week after that because we are nearing the finish line. Midterms are almost here. We'll talk to you guys next week. Thanks. Bye.